This is the fifth Sunday of Easter, and once again in this cycle of readings, we continue uh, reading from the book of Acts, from the first letter of Peter and John's Gospel. And this morning I want to preach on 1 Peter and John's Gospel. Uh, John's Gospel is a gospel that's very familiar, perhaps one of the most familiar lines in this reading in chapter 14 is, in my father's house are many dwelling places. Those of you who've been around the church for a time know that in the authorized version it it is, in my father's house are many mansions, but I will explain in a minute why dwelling places is more felicitous, except those of you who are sentimental about the old version. That's Uh, Most scholars believe that 1 Peter was written around 68 AD, uh, just before he was martyred in Rome. Some think it's later than that, and if it were true, he wouldn't have been able to write it. So uh, it's... (laughs) Which brings up other issues which I cannot speak of now. But... uh, All are agreed that in all probability this letter is a baptismal homily. It's something that would have been preached uh, when baptism was celebrated uh, in the early church. And so it connects to one of the great themes of the great 50 days. Remember Father Keating says three great theological themes that animate this season. God's light, God's life, and God's love. An early word for baptism in the early church was fotismus, enlightenment. So today Peter is speaking of the processes of God at work in the baptized so that we begin as infants, as immature in our spiritual journey. And as we continue steadfast, we become more mature, we become more aware and we become more able to meet the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of us, not only personally, but as the people of God, God's people in the world. And that we understand this as um, something that happens as God's Spirit comes to each of us, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. And so Peter is speaking today of how this may be affected or accomplished. And he speaks of us as a royal priesthood. Somebody hearing this preached to them or read to them for the first time from the tradition out of which Peter comes would have had echoes of the Old Testament or of the Hebrew Bible where we're declared a holy nation, a royal priesthood, and they would have said, that's familiar to me, somehow I know what that must mean. But it's also important to speak about this section because this is the centerpiece for Martin Luther in his development of the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. If you want to really impress your friends, you could call it the locus classicus of Luther's doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. Luther was reacting, of course, against uh, 
things that had grown up during the Middle Ages about uh, the priesthood, what when I was in seminary was referred to as the ministerial priesthood. And he wishes to say that through our baptism, all of us have been ordained. It's our ordination. Some of us are ordained to the ministerial priesthood or the diaconate or the episcopate. And that is the necessary part of the cultic side of our self-understanding as Catholic Christians. But it also is true that Luther was reacting. It's sometime what he did was engage in a polemic against this understanding. And some of you may say, well, what does polemic mean? So I'll tell you, an aggressive attack on or refutation of the opinions or principles of another. Does that sound familiar in our public discourse these days? <laughs> you think there's any polemic floating around? Or sometimes when, when I was in seminary, some of us would get on our high horse and one of the professors, if it was in a class, would say, uh, Mr. Brewer, I see a point of view coming through. <laughs> so Luther was engaged in a polemic for some good reasons, but not for the reasons he always thought, because um, <clears throat> we share the biblical understanding of the priesthood of all believers, Roman Catholics, Anglicans, Lutherans, others, about the, the, the nature of the priesthood of all believers uh, and it is what we understand about that that gives responsibility to all Christians for the preservation and propagation of the gospel and the church. So as distinct from the liturgical roles of the ministerial priesthood, we're speaking here of our responsibilities to the world ethically. And how we understand uh, our role to be God's people in the world. And that being part of that royal priesthood is the way in which we understand what it means to be a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. Which is quoted in this epistle and is from the book of Exodus. So they would have resonated with this echo as it's sometimes called in their sacred literature. In the reading from John's gospel we have uh, part of what is known uh, as the farewell discourse, that it runs from chapter 13 uh, to towards the end of chapter 17. So it's a, a fair amount of Jesus saying goodbye to his followers and speaking about their responsibilities and what's ahead in the future. And three issues are uh, in this particular reading. A promise for an abiding place with God, a sure and clear way to God, and the power to sustain the believing community. So we begin with, in my Father's house, our many dwelling places. Now this has a lot, connection to a number of things. First of all, let me just say, speak about the translation. In the, the version of the Bible we read in the Episcopal Church, the New Revised Standard Version, this translation has been changed from the uh, authorized version from mansion to dwelling places. And it is a more faithful rendering from the original text. 
and it also is theologically consistent with our understanding of where we go when we die when we're with God. Mansions has a, a feel of permanence. And the, the original word for this was dwelling place, sort of like um, a bed and breakfast. Or a hotel. Or a residence inn. It wasn't meant to be permanent. I've said this many times recently. If you go to England and you go into uh, the, gray, the cemeteries of uh, parish churches, often you'll see from about the early to the uh, late 18th century a gravestone that will say, David Brewer, gone, but will return. And after about 1780 or something like that, we begin to get the gravestones that say, David Brewer, gone home. But that's not what the Bible teaches about this. The Bible teaches us that we're going to come back at the general resurrection. When, you ask, will that be? I don't know. But that's the biblical promise. And so focusing on the idea of permanence or understanding the Christian life as laboring in order to go somewhere forever is not what the Christian faith and life is all about. You can still say that if you have a loved one, where are they now? They are safe with Christ in God's space. But understanding it in these permanent terms is probably not the best interpretation. Or, here's another word you can amaze your friends with, exegesis of the text. We have a dwelling place secure in the heavens. If, you're, if you go to the, to the burial office in the, uh, in the prayer book, either write one or write two, there's a preface, the, the thing the priest sings just before we all sing the Sanctus, Holy, Holy, Holy. It's called the preface. And the preface at funerals or for the departed is the best encapsulated explanation of the nature of the Christian hope. So the next thing we have to talk about is I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. So who's the audience for this? You ever read that text and ask yourself, well, who is Jesus speaking about? We use this interpretation, I think, correctly to think in terms of what should our relationship be with the great faith traditions. But in the time of the writing of John's Gospel, I think their principal concern was sort of in-house with various Christian groups that, shall we say, had a rather exotic explanation about who Jesus was and what was the nature of the Christian life. I mean, Muhammad won't be born for about 600 years. Buddha 
who has been around since about 500 BCE, and that collection of uh, religious expression in India that the colonials called usefully, or they thought, Hinduism, is very, very old. But I'm not so sure they were known widely by the people in John's Gospel. It's of great interest, by the way, those of you who may have read Dermot McCullough's Christianity the first 3,000 years, uh, at the time of Paul and uh, others, after Jesus rose again from the dead and descended into heaven, uh, don't speak about the church in Asia. And yet we know that the church went into Asia very early. And how it got there is a question in some ways. I remember reading the, the Divine Office about a year or two ago in the cycle from the book of Acts, and uh, it says that Paul was warned not to go to China. It's just hanging out there. You know, why not? Somebody did. Somebody went to India long time ago, right from the jump. In any case, we're not using this from the standpoint of speaking about casting those who don't share our system of belief into outer darkness. For me, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that's how I choose to come to the Father. And that's what we teach and preach in our family of God. But there are other ways to understand this. And we've gotten ourselves in an enormous amount of hot water when we speak of things like the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Let me read to you again what I read last week from Dr. McQuarrie. I would have to say that the word unique is not helpful in discussing the place of Jesus Christ. Not only Jesus Christ, but every person is unique, and therefore so is Muhammad and so is Gautama Buddha. In place of the words rejected, unique, final, absolute, I shall use the expression definitive for Jesus Christ as understood in Christian faith. He is definitive in the sense that for Christians, he defines in normative fashion both the nature of humanity, which he has brought to a new level, and the nature of God, for the divine word, expressive being, has found its fullest expression in him. This is an affirmation of faith made from within history, not from some vantage point above history. As such, it is content to make an affirmation about Christ and to refrain from negative judgments concerning the truth in other faiths. It recognizes that while Christ possesses fullness and a definitive status, our apprehension of that fullness is always imperfect. Uh, there's a big controversy in evangelical uh, circles these days because of English translations of the Bible that some of them dislike and believe are going to lead us right straight down the road to you know where, <laughs> right? And <clears throat> that's why I always talk about the Greek and the Hebrew 
there are many English translations of the Bible that are excellent that you can trust, and they're very good, and I hope you read them. But when you read in the original languages some of this, things jump out that aren't there. N.T. Wright said, uh, reading the Bible uh, without any knowledge of Greek is like listening to Beethoven's Fifth Symphony on a harmonica. <laughs> you're going to get it, but you're, it's going to be not quite what it could be, you know? So in, so in John's Gospel at the beginning when it says, the only begotten Son of God, only begotten. The Greek word there is monogenes. And it should be translated as unique son, special son. Which they don't like and they get all upset about. And then when somebody says, well, the same word is used in the epistle to the Hebrews to refer to Ishmael and uh, some of the Greek, uh, some of the Hebrew figures in the Old Testament. And they're referred to that way. So certainly they don't mean only begotten or unique. They mean something else. So you can still believe in the divinity of Jesus and be more precise in what it is that you're speaking about when you're speaking about it. So the last part is what do we mean when we speak about I tell you the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do and in fact will do greater works than these. Bishop Frank Griswold, who was the presiding bishop before uh, Catherine Jefford Shorey, had a favorite passage from John's Gospel that occurs later. And that is, Jesus says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Well, how are we going to find them out? What are we going to do? And I expect that reading First Peter and this gospel together give us some idea that if we take uh, the baptismal covenant seriously and we live with some intention, a desire for God, a desire to understand God's will and purpose for us, and we proceed on this path, we see that our own spiritual, emotional, and mental states begin to mature as well. And some of the questions, some of the things that uh, the Savior had to say, we now can apprehend and we can understand. And that maybe those things have something to do with how we behave in God's creation and what it is we do understanding both our partnership and stewardship with Almighty God. So this week, give thanks for being part of a royal priesthood where you are empowered by the Spirit to make known your greatest place of safety and assurance. Give thanks for the fact that you have a dwelling place safe with God, that you will have a sure way to God through Jesus Christ, the definitive focus of the divine presence. And finally, that through the Spirit of God have the power to be sustained to do the greater works that the Savior speaks of in the gospel for today. I think that's pretty good news. Amen. Amen.